0: The Legacy of John Williams, mm-hmm. celebrating the music and the art of Maestro John Williams.
1: Hello and welcome, I am Maurizio Caschetto, editor of The Legacy of John Williams. In this new installment of the LA Studio Legends series on The Legacy of John Williams podcast today I am happy to have another fabulous musician who performed for John Williams on a lot of recordings and film scores for many years. She is the principal harpist of the LA Opera Orchestra and the LA Chamber Orchestra and the LA Master Chorale. She is also one of the first call harpists working the studio environment in Los Angeles and has recorded hundreds of film and television soundtracks, playing for many illustrious film composers. With John Williams, she has been featured as principal harp and also soloist on several projects, including Angela's Ashes, The Book Thief, the BFG, and the recent Star Wars films, among others. She's also a teacher working at the Colburn Conservatory and the USC Thornton School of Music, teaching to the next generation of harp players. She's a winner of numerous awards and the recipient in 2015 of the Lifetime Achievement Award from the American Harp Society. So I'm very glad today to have here and to introduce to our audience, Joanne Turowski. Hello, Joanne, and thank you for being here guest on the Legacy of John Williams podcast.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me. It's an honor to be with you.
1: It's an honor for me because you have played on so many John Williams scores over the years. But before starting to talk about your work with John, I'd love to to touch a little bit about your musical background and formation. So how you ended up being a professional musician and why, when you choose harp as your principal instrument.
2: My father was a violinist and I knew before even I was born that I was going to play the harp. That was kind of his dream. He wanted, he loved the harp and so he, he picked it for me and I started to play uh, when I was seven years old. So um, I played a little bit, teeny bit of piano before that, but I wouldn't, not enough, but uh, so it was really, it was really destined for me by my father and, and, uh, I've been doing it ever since
1: I'm interested because, uh, you know, I I, so far I've talked with a a few musicians of the L.A. area and for many of them, it's it's always very interesting to get into their how they ended up being studio musicians, because it's a very different kind of career rather than being just a classical musician. But from what I see, you kind of mix the two words very well, in a way, being a professional classical musician in in established orchestras and doing also a lot of studio work. So how did you end up getting balanced these two words?
2: It's I think that that this is something that's unique to Los Angeles that this um, opportunity to play with somewhat freelance orchestras like the LA Chamber Orchestra and the LA Opera Orchestra that uh, aren't full-time jobs affords us the opportunity then to also be available for studio work when there aren't conflicts between the two. So it's a very unique way to, to live and to make a living and it's I mean I, I can I feel very fortunate to have this opportunity because to be able to play with the opera and to play with the Ellie Shame Orchestra and all these these different orchestras and Master Chorale, it really feeds my feeds my soul and then also then to be able to pursue my love of working in the with in the movies is just <laughs> it's it's unique to us and uh, I'm, I'm very conscious of how lucky I am to be able to do both.
1: Yeah. And also, I think uh, um, I guess it speaks also a lot about the mindset that you have to to have uh, to be because I talking with other musicians, it's very it's two very different words. I mean, uh, how much do you have to change gears when you're playing in the in a classical setting versus the studio environment? So how, is that a difficult thing for you to do or is just natural?
2: Yeah, I don't I don't actually see that so much I'll, because what matters, what matters to me is to is to be at the top of my game in terms of technique. And a lot of times the the to be, to play the opera and to play the chamber orchestra, I mean, that keeps my technique, my physical technique up to just the very highest it, it is. And then all of that then makes me better when I go into a studio because that environment requires me to have my technique just ready and waiting for me so that whatever is thrown at me, I don't have to worry. You know, I know that physically I can, I can, I can be ready for it.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and this is something essential, I guess, to, to build a really strong musicianship. So, I'd love to have now a brief musical interlude and play an excerpt of a performance of the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra from 2019. It's a selection from Le Tombeau de Couperon by Maurice Ravel, a composer who wrote a lot for the harp, actually, um, which is also prominently featured in this piece. This is an excerpt from the third movement of the suite, the minuet in G major. The Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra is conducted by Jaime Martin. The Minuet from Le Tombeau de Couperin by Maurice Ravel, performed by the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra, conducted by Jaime Martin, with Joanne Trosky on harp. So, another thing I'd love to touch with you, Joanne, before moving to your work for John Williams, is the legacy of the great harpists who played in Hollywood back in the 1940s, 50s, 60s and 70s. I am thinking mainly, of course, of Dorothy Remsen and Stockton and Katherine Gotthoffer, the great harpists who performed in literally thousands of film and television scores. I mean, they were literally playing on everything. Right. <laughs> Just looking at their credits, you can see how much they played on, from, from big yes. films to television shows and, and record dates and, and a lot of things. Yes. But, but they were also active as classical players living this kind of uh, double life. Uh, performing, for example, with Stravinsky in the Columbia years in the 1960s or playing in the Philharmonic. I mean, this is just amazing, I think, and it speaks volumes uh, about, you know, how much the L.A. scene is a very special place for music.
2: Yeah, Yeah, Dorothy Remsen uh, was my predecessor in the L.A. Chamber Orchestra. So you're right. I mean, she did exactly... Exactly that. And at the highest level. Dorothy Remsen was a graduate of Eastman. Catherine Godhoffer was a graduate of Juilliard School. So the very highest caliber of musicians of harpists and as you say created this kind of legacy of of going back and forth. Which which is not unique to the harp, but it's unique to Los Angeles, I would say.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and all of them, or actually, especially Dorothy and and Anne worked a lot with John Williams. I mean, I think that yes. they started playing with, for John uh, back in the 60s and early, and then through the 70s and the, and the 80s. And and of course, when talking about John Williams and Harp, uh, one immediately started thinking about Jaws or E.T., the extraterrestrial.
2: Right, right.
1: Both scores, both both soundtracks have a lot of <laughs> harp writing, and a very prominent solo harp right. writing, which is right. something I guess unique to John. Maybe not just to John, but he seems to get a lot out of the of the, the his harpists. <laughs> in yeah, he ways. does.
2: Well, Dorothy, Dorothy uh, was the famous so- the soloist for that famous E.T. solo, and yes. and after Dorothy retired, and uh, did all of those solos in Schindler's List, so. Oh wow! Yeah, yes. And 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 did did all that so and that was the. Um, then she retired, and then I I jumped. That was when I started. Uh, so my first movie with John was Sabrina, in 1995.
1: That was actually my <laughs> follow up questions. Actually, so the, your your first works with John because you were credited as a soloist on Angela's Ashes in 1999, but uh, I had the impression, of course, that you started a little bit earlier than than that, so how you ended up being the first call harpist for for John, so how that works for for a studio musician is it just something that you uh, you know, you get called by the contractor, in this case Sandy the Crescent, which which is still uh, who is still John's (laughs) music contractor and she says to you come to the studio this day, uh, you are being the principal hub. That's it.
2: Yeah, that's basically it. You know, John, John, <laughs> John really keeps his um, uh, ear to the ground and knows uh, who's doing what. And, you know, he, he, he goes to concerts, hears concerts. So, you know, he can and he has his pick of, of who or whatever he wants. You know, so um, I'm sure that that, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly how it works but i would like to think that somehow john had heard me or or knew of, of my reputation or or whatever so that uh, there was a reason for that based on
1: so let's hear an excerpt from sabrina this is not a harp solo piece but it's a pretty good example i think of the way john williams treats the instrument within the orchestral context uh, a topic that we're going to explore later during the conversation. So listeners, keep your eyes peeled and try to focus on what the harp is doing together with the rest of the orchestra and the solo instruments. The piece is called In the Moonlight, the Great Los Angeles Studio Musician Orchestra is conducted by John Williams. In the Moonlight, from Sabrina, music by John Williams. I guess for you, Joanne, it was really a great honor and, and privilege to be asked to play for, for John well, Williams. And of course. Also because, as we just heard, the harp has always a very specific role in John Williams' music. I mean, it's always there, even if it's not to do in solos. Uh, right. i mean if you listen to any of his pieces and focus on what the harp is doing it's always <laughs> there i mean it almost never stops playing
2: well i'll tell you another thing that i i love very much is the fact that we almost always the harp kind of gets if you listen to the very end of the movie and, and to the end of the of the credits almost always I get the last word. <laughs> Absolutely,
1: yes, and that's a, that is a trope we could say of John. You yeah. know, I, I, this is something I, I really started to notice very early on, back when I was a little kid, kind of uh, that he always ends, especially that the quieter piece with this, you know, with the harp, you know, doing spelling the chord. Sometimes ending on the dominant, sometimes ending maybe on the tonic. It depends, uh, but always spelling out the final chord and that is absolutely i think it's something unique to him i think
2: yeah yeah
1: and 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 it's absolutely wonderful i mean it's something that you re- really recognizes as, as part of his vernacular as part of his language yes And speaking of that, I'd love to talk about Angela's Ashes. That was your first major solo part for John Williams. Um, the harp has a very key role in this score, as it's often playing together with cello, piano and oboe, sometimes in duet, other times in trio or quartet, and of course together with a full orchestra, but you also have a huge and solo piece that is just you <laughs> and no one else almost like a, a mini sonata for hop. um so tell me how that went and how it all came about
2: well john told me that um he really wanted he wanted angela to have a moment and uh, so he that was written for angela it was he really you know wanted to to uh, right for her and it's it's unfortunate it didn't make it into the movie it's only on the on the soundtrack but there's there is as you say so much harp with the other instruments but that solo was um, you know it was it was really quite something and it, it's interesting that that solo has also kind of made it um, into the repertoire of other harpists so it's often performed um, it's been um, competition repertoire at the American Harp Society national competition several times. Wow. So, um, you know, it's really, it's, and it's been recorded um, by another harpist on, on, an album. So it's, it's, uh, you know, it's part, it's part of the literature, the harp literature. But it, as for that day, um, Simon Rhodes was the, was the sound engineer during that period of time. And I was, all by myself on the on the Sony was MGM stage. And just, you know, John and, and Simon were in the booth and, and, uh, you know, just surrounded by microphones and on that big stage and just, you know, played it through several times. And that was that was it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: so I think it's now due to listen to the piece. I mean, uh, it's called The Lanes of Limerick, from the original soundtrack of Angela's Ashes, music by John Williams with Joanne Turovsky on harp. <music> Thank mm-hmm. you. of limerick from angela's ashes so joanne did john williams in this case call you and tell you what was coming for you i mean oh for sure to be prepared for something big that was (laughs) that was coming
2: oh for sure i mean you know it was um well, actually, I think one of the um, the copyists, the music copyist, said, uh, "Oh, there, there's something you're going to want to look at." And in, in back in those days, we did not get music ahead of time. Mm-hmm. So in this case, they gave it to me ahead of time. This was quite an extended. I mean, it's what almost five minutes long. It's an extended yes. solo. So yeah, so definitely, I, I I prepared that ahead of time.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and because that's the other thing. I mean, it's. Like used to the musicians, you have to uh, you have to be ready to play virtually anything of any caliber. You know, easy, middle ground, very difficult it doesn't matter <laughs> the level of difficulty you have to be there and to be on the spot and and i think it was dan higgins the great uh, saxophone player who who told me in our conversation that used to the musicians are like the navy seals of music because basically <laughs> you arrive at the studio you do your job you do it very well and at the end of the day that's it and off to to other things i mean it's not right. just like you have to be specifically focused on something for for too long, I mean, it's just you know being on the spot in that on that moment and being a hundred and ten percent all the time.
2: Yeah, no, there's no no question about it, and it's funny that um, some some movies um, I've I, I've only been credited on Angela's Ashes, but there one of the um, one movie you didn't mention that had so much harp was Munich. Oh yes, and, yes, yeah that that was one, and and. Um, I, I went to I went to see Munich with a friend and at the end of the movie she turned to me because I wasn't credited and she said you were robbed <laughs> <laughs> because there was just <laughs> there was so much heart. but we're used to that you know I, I that doesn't you know we you're I mean Dan's right I mean you just you 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 go there you have that in, intense experience and then you move on
1: that's true yes and, and I think it's also a way to stay always focused on on the job in front of you which is a key element for being a, a great student musician like you so let's listen to an excerpt from munich where you accompanies a beautiful oboe solo by the great john ellis truly magnificent piece yes yeah isn't it
2: another one that um was really quite an experience for me was the memoirs of a geisha john fell in love with the I the sound of the harp and the koto playing in unison so i probably went to um maybe four or five extra sessions just with the koto the koto and the harp and he would keep adding cues where we would where we would play in unison which was an amazing experience to to do that and and so just I'd never been that close to a koto and watch the you know the, the what she had to do in order to to play that thing I mean I think my hearts complicated and that koto man that's a, a, a whole nother story so that was, that was really, and, and I think the sound of it is so beautiful. He was so right, you know, to put those two instruments together. But for us to, we had to play everything in unison, meant to, you know, completely in tune, of course. And uh, so it was quite an experience, it was very intense. It would just be, and sometimes, um, you know, Japanese uh, wind instrument would be there. So the three of us would be on stage do, doing these, these, um, these extra cues. Bye. I think that's one of the fast, most fascinating things about John is how he can um, he can sound Japanese or he can he can sound in Munich. He can um, well, actually, after after we recorded Munich, my mother, you know, who is obviously Jewish and a Holocaust survivor, uh, which has nothing to do with it except she's really Jewish, um, she said to me she said to me I didn't know John Williams was Jewish. <laughs> 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 so. <laughs> so john john managed to fool my mother and i told i went to, so i went i taught I, ta- I, I told john this and he said well you know sometimes i think i am you know <laughs> but you know, john williams is actually not jewish mom <laughs> but he you know so he's able to change hats i mean catch me if you can uh, munich yeah. Memoirs of a geisha I, I, I mean so many of the styles and he he, he owns them to the point that he can fool my mother, you know that he's, he's actually—he's—I think that's the ultimate test, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs>
1: he's able to to sound authentic in right. these various different languages and verna- musical vernaculars but at the same time you recognize his own voice i mean he's able to put his own fingerprints right i think every every time you see okay it's john doing something different and sometimes purposefully you know even when he does for example star wars that he has to sound very traditional classical in the symphonic vernacular the references are clear but at the same time it's it's just john it's not someone else you know it's not just aping someone else someone else's music or or just you know s- scraping things out of you know when he's writing things but he's right. always you know be able to to sound like himself like you know his own voice
2: right and his ability to you know to come up with themes is another oh my, another my yes and just just as a case in point, he did the themes for um, the Obi Wan Kenobi. That's that's um, the next big um, thing yeah. on Disney with the Star Wars. It tur- I was I was at the session where we recorded the theme. Elizabeth Kennedy was there, and um, I, I where I sit in the stage is often. There's a lot of people coming in and out. I'm, I'm in the pathway of the booth to the podium, so. She says she said to me, you know, it was just when we when we thought about this, we realized that John hadn't ever written a theme for Obi Wan Kenobi, and yes. we came to him, we came to him and said and told him this and and asked him if he could. He says, oh, you know, how he's so modest and everything, and then he comes up with this incredibly gorgeous theme. So now Obi Wan Kenobi has a theme. He has this uh, this ability to just create these very unique. Um, signature sounds and, and also and, and here it is, you know, just a new theme for Star Wars. <laughs>
1: wow, after 45 years, I mean, the first one is 1977. So this year, it will be the 45th anniversary. It's amazing to see that he's still churning out new music, creating, for
2: that. creating new themes. Yeah, it's perfect.
1: So Joanne, back to how John Williams uses the harp within the orchestral context. Um, it seems to me that he uses it for both expressiveness and delicacy. Um, the harp quite often is doubling other solo instruments, but at the same time it provides a rich, warm texture, for example when playing together with the strings. Yes.
2: Um,
1: the harp also enriches the palette and it accompanies um, the, the, the group, the orchestra, spelling big and rich chords, for example. Uh, I mean, it seems to me that John Williams employs it both as a color and as a character, as you were noticing before in the case of Angela's Ashes. So, uh, what are, according to you, and from, from your experience, uh, the styles and the tropes, maybe we could say, of John Williams when writing for the harp.
2: Well, I mean, I think you've you've identified the different ways he does it. To me, the what I love the most about it is the accompanimental aspect to it, the richness of it. When I'm often accompanying other, I'm accompanying solo instruments, oboes, clarinets, flutes, you know, combination of of things. To me, that takes the best advantage of the harp. What is unique. What is a unique characteristic of the harp? What makes the harp sound like a harp and different than another instrument? And he, he uses that because the harp is rich. The harp has resonance. A lot of composers these days think guitarish when they hear a harp. And we're not, re- I mean, we can do it and we do it, but to me, What's different about the harp? Different than the piano. We're more resonant. We ring all the time. When we pluck a string, it continues to ring until we stop it and often the harp doesn't stop even if we stop that particular string because of the resonance of the instrument. So, you know, John takes advantage of that rich, warm, resonant sound and it's a harp. You, you, you know it's a harp and it, it can't be that yet still. Thank heavens can't be imitated on a synthesizer because that's what synth can't yet yet do is yes. create all that yes. that overtone um, that, that the harp that the harp has. Yes. So you know it's always rewarding for me to be able to play it as a harp, create all that warmth and richness, you know, which I feel. To me, as a harpist, that's what I'm always looking for. I'm looking for tone. I'm looking for resonance. I'm looking for mm-hmm. depth of sound. I'm looking for color in mm-hmm. my sound, and you know, those that kind of passage work is, uh, you know, the, when John writes that, that allows me to to be a harpist and to and to really take advantage of what my instrument show what my instrument can be and do.
1: Yeah, from what i know john usually writes a very detailed eight or ten line sketch mm-hmm. when composing mm-hmm. uh, a film score i mean it, it's not even a sketch uh, but more like a compressed score mm-hmm. or, or a shorthand that it then is given to the orchestrator um anyway john always carefully notates the harp the uh, harp part already in in the sketches and he never leaves anything to chance I mean for him every note is important
2: right in his concert work he's written a concerto for harp he's he uses it in chamber music so he's obviously very interested um, in the harp and 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 its possibilities and what it can do
0: yeah
1: yeah absolutely do you think that this passion that he seems to have for the harp is tied somehow to the fact that he's a pianist?
2: I don't know. I, I I think it's more his skill as an orchestrator. I mean I think and, and it's not just for the heart. It's how he uses every instrument. You know, he really he really understands the instruments and, and the and the sound that the different instruments can take. And you'll see that in you know in, in, in different movies. Like if you go back to the terminal, for example, and the way he used the clarinet in 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 that in that movie i mean steven spielberg said that that the clarinet was actually a character in the movie it was and that i mean that's that's as true a description as you can make you know i think i think it's his that's his skill is understanding the instruments and understanding how an instrument can become a character in a movie
1: yes and as we heard in the last excerpt the terminal is a score where you have a lot to play (laughs) i mean the clarinet is of course the main solo instrument here but you are playing all the yeah. time.
2: Yeah, yeah, it was. But but it was definitely a clarinet score. I, yes, and, of course. And that em- Emily Bernstein was the magnificent soloist in that. And um, she w- she was my partner and she was actually, that was her last, basically her last movie before she died. And uh, so it was quite that was quite an emotional time and quite an emotional movie. You know, nobody even knew at that point that she uh, maybe probably not even John that she was ill. But it was really it was it was wonderful that the world got to hear her that way um, before she passed away. But uh, that was a very, very, uh, very touching experience to there's a point in the movie uh, in the end credits uh where she has this long extended solo and right before the end uh, she takes this big breath you know and and those of us that knew her and loved her knew that was one of her final breaths You and when you hear that breath you know uh in, in the in the uh in the recording it's really it's really quite something
1: It's, it's very poignant what you just said because it ties to a thing that I mentioned many times in this podcast which is the fact that John isn't just writing for a film or he isn't just writing for a character, he's he's writing for people and, and I think you also feel into this category because I mean he is not just writing for for the instrument in itself but he's writing for the person that is playing that instrument and this is what makes his music i think unique more than other film composers is because that he's always thinking about why the the reason why the music should sound in some way or another is because of the person who is playing it and of course his music has been picked up by many soloists around the world many orchestras and everyone puts his own on her own character to it but i think that the starting point for him is the person
2: yes i think i think that's absolutely absolutely correct and um I, i'm actually forgetting what movie that we did um where it was it's a permanent yo-yo ma um
1: memoirs of a what they were there were it's a permanent yo-yo right, ma right. playing the solos
2: right right and those sessions well, i think we did them at royce hall yes um, yeah um, and and
1: and that that was a score that actually also uh steve ardodi the cellist and and jim walker flutist uh both of them told me that it was one of their favorite experience because first of the setting royce hall is very different than, than the regular film studio recording stage but at the same time the fact that he, john did a lot of this small chamber so, uh, yes. sessions with you yes. and steve told me about uh, as a specific session with uh, yo yo ma himself and you yes <laughs> and and That's john right. ellis at the oboe right it's what a kind of right. a quartet that yes. you did together and it's an incredible piece of music which now i want to listen together with you and with our listeners um the beauty of this piece is really enhanced by these four great instrumentalists yo yo ma of course steve erdogan john ellis and Joanne Turowski. So let's listen to this piece from Memoirs of a Geisha. I think this is a truly amazing piece of music. Yeah. So, Joanne, do do you have any recollections of other sessions that felt this special for you?
2: I loved um, Book Thief as well, and it's one that doesn't get a lot of attention. But and, and Randy Kerber's playing in Book Thief was just. To me, it's amazing. It's 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 a CD that I'll often pull up just to, you know, to listen. I just I love the movie and Book Thief. Some of some of John Smaller projects are often my most most favorite. and They, they, they don't get very much attention. But <laughs> that was one of my Yeah, you, you are
1: absolutely correct. I mean, and I'm thinking also of, of other films. I mean, The Book Thief is special. I, I talked about Book Thief with Randy when I talked to him recently. And and it's amazing because it, that, that is another occasion where he had four or five soloists, specific people playing solos, uh, including you, and and also you you have a quite an extended solo in that in that in that movie.
2: Yeah, it's just again just these smaller experiences. Sometimes I'll, I'll tell you one other. Just a funny aside. Um, you know, we didn't record any of the Harry Potter movies because they were recorded in London. Yes. But uh, we uh, we were called to do the trailer, which was pretty exciting because we knew we weren't going to get to do the movie, but we were. We it was fun to do that. So, um, but I was I was I was sent some extra music for that, and it turns out. That in order when when you animate, you have to animate to music, so the music has to be recorded first, so that they can animate to it. And in the first Harry Potter story, there's a three-headed dog that guards the entrance to their adventures, and in order to calm the dog, the harp has to play. Yes. So I I actually recorded. The music, that solo of the three-headed dog, for them to animate to. Wow. And then, then when they actually did the score, then she had to play. Then the harpist, the wonderful harpist in London, had to play over it. But she had to do it the way I did it, (laughs) because. (laughs) it's a kind
1: of a pride point in many ways yeah
2: it is it is no we didn't get to play it but i know that i was my playing was animated too
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's a lovely story actually and i think also john did uh and a specific, a special arrangement of the the main Harry Potter theme, Hedwig's theme, for harp. Yes. That uh, that is, I think, is used again as a uh, as a competition piece or as an addition piece also for all, for all harp players. One, <laughs> one of my
2: one of my students is playing it at this very minute. <laughs> He's how to play it. <laughs> so yes, indeed. Yeah, there's. And it's very difficult. I mean, two, it's. I think two solos. It is it is very difficult
1: yes i mean i know harry potter is it's a challenge for it was a challenge for randy who played the celeste solo and yeah. he told me that that was really putting his own skill at at, at a test a real test but also it is is a audition piece for violin players because the violin part of mm. the main theme is yeah. very <laughs> you have to you know be very 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 quick with your play with your instrument to be to be on yeah. the spot and that's the other thing i mean uh, did you ever did you ever have any any situation with John where where you ended up being having a part that was particularly challenging for you
2: they're all challenging but certainly to to do the angelus ashes solo that was challenging and he um, certainly that was probably one of the most challenging but it, he always manages to push us to the brink often i shouldn't say always but often we get pushed to the brink of of what's possible to play. And uh, you always know when you're going in that you're going to be, you're going to need to be at the top of your of your physical capabilities and, and, and your focus and all of that to be ready for what may be, may be put in front of you. And even though often we now get our music ahead of time, which is incredibly helpful, um, but sometimes things will appear on our stand. Another funny story about that is, uh, we were on a, a session and had gone to lunch, and I was actually talking with Steve, erdoti We were having lunch together, and we had we were kind of we had said to each other we seemed to be on top of what's expected of us. Maybe we could breathe a sigh of relief, and then we got back, and on our stand was um, the. Uh, birthday piece that he'd written for Seiji Ozawa's birthday, which is a series of theme, inv- theme variations. And there it was on our stand. It was Sandy de Crescent's birthday and he decided to pull that out and we would record it on the spot, having never played it or seen it before. And, you know, just, it was this, we learned not to ever relax. <laughs> you know, yeah, you never know what you're gonna you're gonna come back to, with yeah. John.
1: <laughs> you never know what he is asking to. So right, right. <laughs> better to be ready to do the, the, the solo of yeah. your career at any right. moment. at any
0: moment. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: Score where you have extended solo parts, and it's also a favorite of mine, uh, is AI, artificial intelligence. Oh,
2: right, right, yes. That is
1: an incredible score, in my opinion. A very dense and layered score, like nothing else that John Williams did before or since, in my opinion. Um, the film by Steven Spielberg is a very dark, futuristic tale, uh, but John's music is commenting on on the beautiful love story between the mother and the robot child. Uh, I'd love to listen with you to an excerpt from the score uh, in which you have a very big solo. Uh, It's the scene before the finale where the little robot child is being told by one of the highly evoluted robots um, about how they can bring back his mother to life for just one day and fulfill uh, the robot child's wish it's a dialogue scene uh, but John wrote a truly poignant moving piece of music that really goes straight to the heart so let's listen to this excerpt from AI Artificial Intelligence This, this piece that we just listened to uh, from AI, artificial intelligence, is really something that really tugs my, my heartstrings in many ways because I think John, uh, in this movie, in this score, John and Stephen were together able to, to reach into something deeper uh, and into something that was very dear to them uh, to express musically. And I think this is one of the major qualities in John's music uh when it comes to um to reach uh, a level of, of depth into his into his soul and being able to grab into something deep into himself and pu- pull it up and and bring it into the into the realm of of music uh so speaking of that uh, do you think his music has a special depth in this regard i mean Um, Do you think that he's able to go deep into some special place and being able to, you know, to transform this deep feeling into into something special, musically speaking?
2: Well, I think think that really goes to what is so unique about John and his ability to uh, take each picture, which is, so different, everyone is so different, especially this one, uh, AI, so un- unusual for Steven as well. And to find music that that so amplifies the feeling of the movie that is, um, and, and so different from anything else he may have ever done, but that's the case with all of them. It's his ability to, to understand the emotion of the movie and the uniqueness of each, of each project so that it never, it never sounds the same. I I was, I was really, I hadn't heard that, that, um, that portion of AI in a long time. And I, I was so, I was so touched by listening to it. It was so deeply beautiful and, but that's the case. That's so John, I mean, every single movie, he manages to find that that kernel of emotion in the movie and amplify it in, in, in a way that is so, so compelling and unique.
1: Very true. And, and also this ties to what we were talking about before, about the fact that he's writing not just to a movie and reacting to what he's seen on screen, but also the fact that, especially when he's working for Steven Spielberg, he is writing for him as a person in the sense that uh he really takes care a lot of the, the relationship and i think what they achieved together throughout the their now almost 50 years <laughs> career together which is something really astonishing if we think about it as you said is the range of diversity of their collaboration but also the fact that they were able to touch upon so many different styles and genres but always staying true to themselves and I think for this this for John is very important you know establishing this direct connection to to another human being and being able to to express this musically with so much depth So I saw that, uh, you know, checking on, on your, on your bio, on your resume, that you have a very fruitful and and long career in teaching, and and this is something very interesting to me because this is something like a a, a recurring motif, <laughs> and so, pardon the pun, uh, with all these talks I'm doing with, with LA studio musicians that a lot of you have this parallel career as teachers, besides uh, also uh, being uh, excellent and very talented studio players. So how is that for you? I mean, how important is your career as a teacher?
2: Well, first of all, I've been teaching basically my entire career. So it really has spanned a long time and it is very, very rewarding. And a lot of what's rewarding about it is the fact that uh, I have had many successful students. In fact, one of my students just became, won the audition for the Vancouver Symphony. There were like 70 people applying and she won the job and, and, um, and she's moved to Vancouver and, and playing. And I've had, I've had uh, recently one of my students won American Heart Society National Competition. And so I've had very successful students, but I've also had many students many students who have gone on to are not going to be professional musicians and and the plan was never that they were going to be professional musicians um, one of my students just this very day contacted me to tell me that she had just graduated from medical school and had gotten a position um, in albany new york as a surgical resident and i have i've have had numerous students who have actually gone on to become doctors i had I had no. one, one who graduated from the Colburn School and then and then chose, which is you know, very focused on music, obviously, at the Colburn School, and then uh, went back and, and um, actually got into the United States Naval Medical, Naval Academy Medical School. And she too is a, is a surgeon. And I think that may be a case of the only time the graduate of the Colburn School will become, have, have become a doctor. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> she will probably uh, have a unique role for, forever in that case. It doesn't happen that often. So, you know, I find, I find and I've had the you know, doctors, environmentalists, lawyers, I mean, just any mix and match. But, you know, to me, the important thing is that they have in, been instilled with a love of music, um, an interest in music, a love of, of the harp and, perform, and playing the harp. Without the responsibility of having to be a professional musician in a lot of ways, what, what it is is that they, they do it out, a lot more out of love with, without any of kind of the, the pressure of it. And to me, that's almost more important than than, than the ones who go on to have careers in music, which is, you know, a small percentage, but to to have had an opportunity to introduce an instrument to students. I I also, um, because I played with the opera and the LHM works particularly with the opera, I offer tickets to my students and the opera is very generous to allow students to come to performances. So for some of these students, they would never have ever had an opportunity to even hear an opera or know what an opera really is. And this is kind of part of it. They've been exposed. They've had the opportunity, opera, ballet, what, you know, many different genres of it. And I think that that has enriched so many lives, so many young people's lives. And I feel uh, so grateful to have had the opportunity to to be a part of
0: that yeah
1: and also i think it's a wonderful uh opportunity to let's say give back you know Uh, i i also saw this wonderful uh connection between musicians That the fact that maybe they they feel tied to the previous generation who passed on their knowledge and their artistry to the next one and, and this is an ongoing thing, I see, from, from you know, for many musicians, you know, the importance of having good mentors and good teachers to, you know, to also have a sense of place uh, in, into what you are doing. And, and I think it's also something that ties to John Williams in a way because I see that he seems to be very, very tied to the culture of orchestra musicians for example i see that for example i was i was able to go to vienna for the for the concert that he did with the vienna philharmonic and of course besides of the prestige of the place of course and the orchestra he was able to to feel connected especially to the players there and for example he played the beautiful violin concerto the new violin concerto he wrote for anne sophie mutter uh, and that has a, a huge extended part for for harp as well and he put the the harp the harpist uh, besides the podium you know opposite to the violin and this was very interesting to me because he wants to give prominence not just to the superstar (laughs) in this regard but also to the to the musician in general and i see that he's very much tied to the to that culture of orchestral excellence not just because he works with wonderful great superstar musician but also when he works with you know regular orchestra players.
2: right. Well I've seen him conduct in, um, in several of the schools and music festivals that where I work and, and teach. For example, he's done concerts at, at Thornton School, at the University of Southern California. Um, Music Academy of the West in Santa Barbara, and it's usually a concert of his music, or at least a half of it, but he he conducts, and certainly in in the times that I've seen him do that, and at the end of the concert, he always, after everybody has applauded, and the audience is still applauding, but everybody's been acknowledged, he turns his back to the audience, and he speaks directly, he just stops the whole thing and he speaks directly to the young musicians in the orchestra and It's just something that you never I've never seen anybody else do that. And it's it's so meaningful to the to the young musicians. Not only have they experienced his music and his conducting and and all of that, but then he speaks to them in a personal way about music, about their and it's not short. I mean, he doesn't say, Oh, thanks for playing, and then turn around. You know, he he has a, you know, he really speaks to them and you know, from it, and it's always different. I mean, I'm I'm not in the orchestra, so I don't hear it, but I, I hear from different students, you know, when I ask them what he said, it's always different. It's always from his heart. And it's such an unusual thing and and such a giving thing that he does yes. that is, is uh, uh, just just very touching to watch him do it.
1: Yeah, it is. And I think it this ties very well with with the idea of of the legacy that he's leaving to, to, to the world. I mean, I I guess he's very much aware about about that. I mean, and, and he knows that lots of orchestras and musicians will play his music in the years and decades and, and probably <laughs> centuries to come, uh, but at the same time, he's very much connected to, to the place, to the time and place, to the present, and I think that is very much important to him. <laughs> This is also a nice way uh, to to cap off our our conversation, Joanne. Uh, so uh, it, it was really a, a beautiful, wonderful talk in depth, very much, and we touched on so many things. I would go on probably <laughs> for, for another hour or so uh, talking with you about about John Williamson and and the fabulous playing that you you grace so many of his beautiful scores. One very last question. Uh, do you have any any favorites from John's repertoire?
2: You know, it's it's really they're all so different. It's, it's really hard. I mean, I I love some of the smaller ones. I mean, I loved Memoirs of a Geisha. I loved Munich. Uh, you just reminded me how beautiful A.I. was. I loved the book Thief. I guess I really I really it's, it's kind of like asking someone if, who, which child they love more. I, I mean, they're all so beautiful and so unique, but. Those are definitely some of my favorites, but I, I will say that he never disappoints. There's, there is never one that you don't like <laughs> or that you're not touched by. Challenged by, touched by, moved by, uh, just basically in awe.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's, it's difficult to pick up just a few <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: in, a, in a career so long and so fruitful. and I mean, he's 90 years old and still going on So with so much strength and passion and um, of course we all wish that he will go on you know for many forever <laughs> <Right>. forever. <laughs> <laughs> forever absolutely yeah. joanne thank you thank you so much for being so kind so generous and uh with me uh it was really a beautiful talk and and really thank you so much for for this for sharing all these wonderful stories and knowledge about uh, music.
2: Uh, thank you for having me. I, I'm honored to be with you. And anything that I can say to honor John, I, it's my pleasure.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Joanne. It was absolutely my own pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye.